Jesus, we want to thank you for your word. It is good, it is right, it is the best. And know that you are up to something. So Holy Spirit, we do indeed welcome you here. Would you open our hearts, would you open our minds, would you speak and make us better people? And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to especially welcome those of you who are going to be watching this online. God bless you. I want to uh, just say this. I love getting into trouble. But it has to be the right kind of trouble. Like, I've been in a lot of other sorts of trouble, but the right kind of trouble is fun trouble to be in. Like the time I was golfing with my friend Gary, who was giving me grief about a shot I had made that had just drilled this home on the side of the fairway. I had to go over and check with the owner to make sure I didn't break anything, you know. And Gary was just laughing and laughing and laughing. So I started looking for a way to pay him back. Well, around halfway through the round of golf, I hit a ball that rolled into some bushes. As I was looking for my ball, I found another ball that was nearly cracked in half. I picked that ball up and discovered that it was possible to actually position that ball on the ground in such a way that it looked normal and round, except I knew, and now you know, that the ball almost was split in half. Perfect for my friend Gary. So my moment came when Gary topped the ball on two consecutive shots. He was pretty mad, a little upset. He's having a conversation with his golf club before he slammed it into the bag. And that is when I switched his ball out and gave him the cracked ball. Well, as Gary approached what he thought was his ball, I did my best as his friend to encourage him. I remember saying something like, hey, buddy, brush it off. You're due. You can get it all back on this shot. Well, Gary lined up over the ball that he thought was his ball, and he takes his backswing like he's going to hit this ball 300 yards. And bam, that ball explodes into about a thousand different pieces. You know, nobody knows which piece to follow. It was one of the funniest things that I've ever seen on a golf course. Even funnier because of Gary's reaction, which I can't uh, share with you here. I love getting into trouble, the right kind of trouble. Now, Acts chapter 8 is about getting into trouble, and it's a specific kind of trouble. It's the kind of trouble we get into when we see the world as God sees it, uh, as God sees it, as God intends it, when we get provoked to engage in some way, and then we do something about it. Now, our passage this morning tells us that the church is on the run. Saul is attempting to totally annihilate the Christian religion. It's a dark time. And yet, and yet throughout this passage that that, uh, Kendi just read are these signs of subversive community, a radically different kind of people, a new way of life. And nothing, not fear or imprisonment or physical beatings or even death will deter them. Nothing. Uh, So let me just sort of run through those verses to kind of pick those pieces out. The apostles in verse 1, they show courageous leadership because they stay in Jerusalem. They uh, uh, stay to confront their opposition to preach the gospel of Jesus. The scattered church in verse 4, it it goes out and it starts preaching wherever it goes. Philip in verse 5 ends up in Samaria which is really shocking because Jews hated Samaritans. 
But Philip is showing that this gospel about Jesus absolutely breaks down racial barriers. And then Philip performs these miraculous things in six and se- verse 6, 7, and 8. He casts out evil spirits. He heals some paralyzed people. And it just becomes clear to everyone that whatever these Christians have, it has total power over the physical and spiritual world. So put those pieces together. Courage, compassion, racism shattered, people healed and spiritually set free, a radical hope in Jesus. God's agenda for our world is to restore what's broken. God making this world more like the world he meant it to be. Human beings flourishing, joy and hope in Jesus. Profitable businesses built on sound principles of honesty, integrity, and justice. Equal access to resources like food and clean water and an education and housing. Restoration is about wrecking the status quo. It's about wrecking poverty. It's about wrecking corruption. It's about wrecking injustice. It's about wrecking what our culture has come to accept as normal, like broken families and addictions and bad marriages and at-risk kids. And that's where we come in, you and me, because we partner with God to bring his compassion, his peace, generosity, and beauty, and we bring that back into this world that is missing it. We change the way things are so that they become more like what God meant them to be. That's what restoration is all about. But status quo pushes back on restoration, and that is where we get into trouble. Now, in our passage in Acts chapter 8, the church is facing severe persecution and almost total annihilation. But the big question for me as I look at this passage, I think the big question for all of us is this one. Why are the Christians still in Jerusalem? See, in Acts uh, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had promised them the Holy Spirit, and then he charged them to go, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that charge, go, plus the promise of the Holy Spirit is the spark that God is going to use to ignite his restoration movement. So it's like he- heaven, all of heaven has their sleeves rolled up. All right, here we go. But all of the disciples, the whole church, every Christian, they're still in Jerusalem. They're the church of the unscattered, the community of the comfortable, the come-to-us church, not the the go-to-the-world church. Why are they still there? Like, what about go didn't they understand from the words of Jesus, right? Now, Watership Down is this book about some traveling rabbits in search of a home. And the book began as a series of stories that its author, Richard Adams, used to tell to his daughters. It's about a rabbit who gets this messianic vision that something bad is really going to happen. And so he, uh, the rabbit tells his brother and everyone else, only a few people, a few of the rabbits believe him, and they manage to escape just before bulldozers move in and just wreck the whole area, clearing a space for a new housing development. The rest of the story is about the dangers and obstacles that these rabbits face as they search for a new home and as they try to establish a new life in this place called Watership Down. Now, the dangers and the obstacles that each of these rabbits face, uh, face it, uh, those things go against everything that it means to be a rabbit. Like, because the DNA of a rabbit is to stop running, dig a hole, and a hide, play it safe, 
seek security. But for some reason, these rabbits don't do that. And instead, they get in a lot of trouble. But they also find a new life, the new life that they are looking for. Now, I think this story is a perfect metaphor for our lives as followers of Jesus. Because so many followers, and I don't mean any of us here in the room or those of you who are going to be watching this online, but other, you know, other followers, other followers of Jesus, uh, they, uh, uh, they want to play it safe in life and in faith. Maybe you're playing it safe relationally. You're not being honest and open about what's going on in you. Or maybe, maybe it's that you just can't find the courage to speak the truth and love to someone who's doing some things that's wrecking their life. You're playing it safe relationally. Or maybe you're playing it safe professionally or in your, or in your faith. You, you've been thinking a lot about making a change in your career, but it's risky. And quite honestly, you'd rather be secure and you like the security that you have now. Or maybe you felt Jesus nudging you to do something for quite a long time, but that's scary, so you haven't done anything. You're playing it play, uh, faith. You're playing it safe professionally, or in your faith. Maybe you're playing it safe financially. There's some amazing things that could happen because of your generosity, but you're watching your bottom line and you're holding back. So let me just begin today by asking you, as we go through this passage and we think about this whole restoration movement and a church and followers that, that tend to stay, where are you hiding from trouble in your life? Where are you playing it safe? Now, getting into trouble, it helps restore our community, it helps restore our world, and it helps restore us for lots of different reasons, like the fact that getting into trouble improves our prayer life right? Like there is nothing that drives us to our knees asking for God's help than when we're in trouble. You ever been there? Like, and the closer, you know, and the more that we talk to God, the closer we feel to him, and that improves our prayer life. And getting into trouble, it makes us depend on God more. Trouble has this amazing ability of humbling us and making us realize that we're not in control. God is, <laughs> God uses that trouble to bring us face to face with our desperate need for him. And then, when we're in that place, God is really able to show us exceedingly abundantly, more than we can even ask or imagine power to provide for what we need in that moment. And getting into trouble helps us experience more of God's power, more of God's presence. Because trouble brings us to the end of ourselves and to the beginning of God. And that's when God does his best work, because then we discover that his promises are sure, his grace is sufficient, and his timing is never late. That God is at his strongest when we are at, his, when we are at our weakest, and his love never fails. You see, the problem with safety is that it robs us uh, uh, of the adventures that show us God's power. And they rob us of those adventures which give us an experience of God's love and his presence. I was talking on the phone with a friend who recently decided to leave a job that he loves to take another job in another place of the country. It's not a place or a job that he would have selected. He'll make less money. He's going to have to leave family and friends. The only positive thing about the position initially as he was thinking about it was that he could see that through this job God could use him in some way to restore others. He said, when I looked at the package they were offering and the things that I would have to give up in order to take this job, 
it just didn't pencil. There were so many ways that the costs outweighed the benefits. But that's when I got really excited because I realized that this was probably something God was asking me to do. I've been playing it safe for a long time, and this is the first time in a long time where me and my family get to really depend on God. This is deepening our faith in so many ways, and it's so exciting. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like a guy getting into some trouble. It's making him depend on God. His faith is becoming more and more real, and he's breaking free of the safety idol. So how do we become restorers? If that's what God wants to invite us into, how do we become restorers? I think there's three ways. The first way is this. To become a restorer is to envision the world as God meant it to be. See it as God intended it. Now, that's what the first Christians were notorious for. They looked at people not as those people were, but as for uh, who God meant them to be. So they gave generously and shared what they had with the poor. They formed a loving community that included widows and orphans and anyone else who'd been stripped of loving, significant relationships. Those early disciples saw disease and sickness as part of a broken world. And so they took care of the sick and they stayed with the dying, even at risk of their own lives, because they knew that even if they died, they would live. They saw a world created for a relationship with God and missing out on it. So they talked about Jesus wherever they went and invited people to, to embrace him and to follow him as Lord and Savior. Restorers see what others think is impossible. We dream what others can't dream because they have accepted the hurts and the sickness and the darkness and the despair of the status quo. The second way we become restorers is to uh, engage. Now, one of the subversive signs in this passage that Kendi read that I haven't mentioned yet, it happens in verse 2 where we read these, uh, of these godly men who buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Now, these men were probably part of a band of brothers who'd met together, worshipped together with Stephen. But what's so remarkable about these guys is that in this amazingly incredible godless moment, right, they're dragged Stephen out of the town and they have stoned him to death, that these men act counterculturally. They are the ones who give Stephen a proper burial. They are the ones who grieve and uh, uh, outwardly about what has just occurred. It's like they interrupt the insanity of the moment and inject this beautiful display of God's faithfulness, God's compassion, and God's love. They inject that back into a community that had gone insane. Instead of running like everyone else, those guys engaged. You see, not only do we as restorers see the world as God intended it, as God meant it to be, but we allow ourselves to be provoked and engage so that we do something about it. Those early Christians, they spotted darkness wherever they went, and then they showed up to bring whatever light they had, which is really the point. They showed up. They engaged. That's what restorers do. So restorers see the way things ought to be, the way God meant them to be. Restorers engage. And the third thing that restorers do is that they create. You see, God is a creator. 
He created the heavens and the earth, the land and the oceans, plants and animals. But he didn't stop there. The best was yet to come. Because in his own image, in the image of God, he created us. Female and male, you and me. Now then some people think that God took the seventh day off and he's basically been on vacation for the four and a half billion years ever since. Because that's how old evolutionists say the earth is. But God still creates. And one of the primary ways that God creates is through you and through me. That's, what, uh, that's because sharing God's image means that we share his creativity. God gives us imagination and appreciation for things like beauty and justice and goodness. He puts his Holy Spirit in us and fills us with his presence and he fills us with his power. It's like you and I, we are just filled and bursting with this creative potential. And so that's what we do. We, we create stuff. We, we can't help ourselves. We create new organizations or new services. We create new relationships with new people. Or we create new relationships out of the old ones that we have. We create art and we create media and we create projects and we create businesses, all which can reflect the, uh, reflect the image of Jesus. We create a new way of being in relationship with neighbors. We could even create a new way of being soccer moms and soccer dads. But here's the thing. When we create, each time that we create, we begin to change the culture around us, change our community, change our world, to becoming more like the community and world God meant it to be. Now, not too long after Catherine committed her life to Jesus, she began to feel like her career and her life as a, uh, sorry, her life and her career as a venture capitalist was, was uh, way too self-centered and like she needed to give something back to people who were in need. So she asked God to show her how she could do that. And one day she was invited to visit a prison. What she expected to see in prison was a bunch of men who acted like these caged animals. But instead what she saw was this tremendous opportunity to leverage their skills in business. The skills that they'd used to commit these crimes, she believed she could use instead to develop business and make these guys contributing members of society. So she started flying to Texas uh, once a month. God was doing something new in her, something exciting in her, but it was scary. Well, within a few months, Catherine felt God nudging her to leave her old life, to leave her job, and to move to Texas. So she did. And within the first year, she absolutely ran out of money. Like, she ran right through her wealth. And so she came to this place where she had to depend on God's miraculous power to provide for her need. And he did. Soon, other prisons were contacting her to see if they could duplicate her model. Her organization recruits business executives and leaders from all over the country who meet with these uh, inmates, support them, encourage them, mentor them as they study business and finance. Now, the national average for men returning to prison after they have uh, been released is 70%. But for Catherine's organization, guys that go through that program, it's less than 10%. She is turning tax consumers as inmates into taxpayers as business leaders. Catherine is a restorer. Seeing these men as God meant them to be, 
Catherine dreamed the impossible, and instead of being offended by the kinds of things these guys had done to land in prison, she engaged by asking God to use her strengths, her passions, and her worth. Then she created an organization which made inmates into business leaders. Now, it hasn't been easy, and if you ask her, she will say that she's been in a lot of trouble, but it's been the right kind of trouble. She is free of the safety idol, and now her life is really different. It's full of adventure and uh, a closer, more intimate experience with Jesus. Now, God isn't asking every one of us here to leave our job. It's not what I'm saying, so just, feel, you know, the, I, I'm not, he's not asking us to leave our job or to move to a different place of the country or to start something new. Uh, but we can be restorers right where we are right now. Now, Dave and Kate just moved into their neighborhood from another area of the country. Uh, they'd only been in their home for a couple of months and realized just how disconnected people were around them. They didn't belong to any clubs. They weren't in any social circles. They didn't have any kids to connect with other kids who then would connect with their families. It was tough for them to make friends. Now, many in their situation would just accept, have accepted status quo and just sort of dealt with it. But Dave and Kate are restorers. They saw the way God meant community to be, and they dreamed what they could do. So they started connecting with people at their church. They started reaching out to neighbors and talking with them. And then they started this once-a-week uh, dinner party in their home where absolutely everyone was invited. Thursday nights, the smell of home-cooked food would fill the downstairs, and people would just come in, you know, and they'd sit in these oversized couches and chairs on the floor, around tables. Uh, they'd uh, drink a lot of coffee and eat a lot of food. But conversations there were open, and they were honest, and they were real. That was part of the rules. There were no business cards exchanged. People just simply came as they were. Dave and Kate call it family night. They've broken the status quo on individualism and isolation and instead created a community of friends who can do life together. That's what restorers do. So what kind of trouble can you get into that will drive, your, drive you to your knees in prayer? What would it look like if you depended on God more and broke free of the safety idol? What if all of us in this room right here, right now, businesswomen and businessmen, doctors and lawyers, programmers, students, teachers, civic servants, engineers, electricians, artists, musicians, moms and dads, singles and retired, what if all of us committed to use our skills and our passions and our wealth to break the status quo? What if we all lived as restorers? So, Lord Jesus, would you get us into some trouble? The right kind of trouble. Would you change us from safety-minded followers to restoration envisioning followers? Lord, help us to know you better, to depend on you more, and to be part of what you are doing to restore this world. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.